morning, everybody. My name is Travis. I am a sometime member of the preaching team here at Revolution, although I don't get to do this very often. And this morning I get to talk to you about sin, which I can tell from your body language you are looking forward to immensely. <laughs> this is a subject that is bound to raise my popularity by zero percent. However, I'm going to ease us into my subject today with the well-worn observation that there is something wrong with us. Not just us in the room, I mean humans. Humans are not quite right in this respect, that we often do not do what we ought to do. Now, this is not really news to anybody, and I'm not going to belabor the point by rehearsing for you the history of human moral failings, or even to ask you to look at your news feed. Even if you're not a Christian, and even if you're not a theist, you've got to admit that humans get up to some pretty shady stuff. Uh, but I contend that our belief that there's something wrong with humans, right, that this belief that we share is mostly driven by our dissatis dissatisfaction with other people. Uh, and as witness, I bring the fact that we spend an awful lot of time complaining about what other people do. Now, <clears throat> Up to a few decades ago, everybody knew that we complained a lot about what other people do, but understanding the scale and scope of the complaining was mostly a matter of inference from one's own complaining and uh, the complaining of the relatively modest number of people you could get to know and hear about and read about in your lifetime. But thanks to the modern miracle that is social media, it is now possible to instantly obtain literally billions of documented records of people complaining about what other people do, often in real time. I personally do not spend much time on social media, uh, partially because I prefer to complain about what other people do to their faces, and <laughs> partially because anyway, the thought of receiving thousands of half-formed thoughts from hundreds of disembodied persons, mostly that I don't know, sounds to me like some kind of a nightmare. But by way of shooting fish in a barrel and to illustrate the point that we think that there's something wrong with, at least with other people, I asked my son Alexander over here uh, to go online to find me a suitable example of the thing I'm talking about. He immediately supplied the following transcript, uh, which took, some, took place some years ago on a forum dedicated to weightlifting and bodybuilding. Uh, the names have been mostly left the same because it's a public forum and nobody cares. <laughs> the, the spelling has been changed to protect me from stumbling over what these people are trying to say. The first post, okay, so I'm just telling you, gird up your loins because I'm not sure if I can do this justice. <clears throat> the first post is from a person with the username Mindless. Mindless, is it safe to do a full body workout every other day? I only have limited days I can get to the gym and lately instead of doing upper body or lower body, I just do full body strength workouts. I'm trying to gain as much as I can without getting fat. So the first response to Mindless's question is from the congenial all-pro who observes, most beginner to intermediate programs are full body workouts three times per week. So I think that's safe to assume that, that those are safe. Mindless responds with another question. If I go every other day, I'll be at the gym four to five times a week. Is that overtraining? I typically work out for 60 to 90 minutes. I push myself and raise the weight each week. 
a couple of people then respond to the effect that no, mindless will be fine. So then this post from Stevie. Stevie, that makes no sense. There are only seven days in a week. If you go every other day, that's 3.5 times a week. At this point, username the Josh steps in. Apparently in defense of mindless, it's difficult to say. Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Sunday, that's four days. How do you go 3.5 times, do a half workout or something? LOL. Here, uh, a new poster, username Justin, intervenes. He replies to the Josh, Justin, seven times in two weeks equals 3.5 times a week, genius. And yeah, three, point, three times a week, full body workouts are good. The Josh will have none of it. The Josh. I never said anything about going exactly seven times. Like I said, if I go every other day, that is four days a week. How hard is that to comprehend? Week one, Sunday, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. Week two, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Sunday. Eight days in two weeks. In your terms, eight times in two weeks equals four times a week. Genius. All muscle and no brains. LOL. From here, the conversation rapidly descends into a really vitriolic, yet surprisingly stupid exchange between Stevie, Justin, and the Josh. Stevie, you double counted Sunday, that is two weeks plus one day. Did you fail grade two math? <laughs> plus, your old post said four to five times a week. Now you just neglect to mention the five. Grow up and admit when you're wrong. Believe me, you'll go a lot further in life this way. The Josh reposts, and here I paraphrase, are you mentally ill? Maybe you should look at a calendar. I didn't double count Sunday. My two weeks started and ended on Sunday, exactly 14 days. What don't you, what don't you understand? He then provides a link to a calendar, or a picture of a calendar. <laughs> Here is a calendar. I made little dots for each day so you could comprehend. Then Justin, dude, that is 15 days. Are you that bleeping mental? You don't have a, you can't have a week go Sunday, Saturday, then Sunday, Sunday. Look at the bleeping pic you posted. Count the days. What do they equal? 15. <laughs> this goes on for like two straight days. <laughs> and all over social media, some similar kind of stuff is going on all day and all night, every day, all the time, uh, to greater or lesser degrees of, you know, substantiveness. However, what's notable about all this to me is that as easy as it is for us to fasten on what we think is wrong with others, we have a much more difficult time seeing and admitting what is wrong with us. But there is something wrong with us. If we're honest and if we look very closely at ourselves, at what we think and at what we do when we think we can get away with it, and indeed in the way that we treat what we perceive to be failings in other people, we can see that very frequently we do not meet our own moral standards. We often do not do what we ourselves think is right, even when it's obviously in our power to do it. So I think this is clear. What is less clear is what exactly the problem is. That is, what exactly is it that is wrong with us? People have given a variety of uh, answers to this question. Some people think that the problem is simple selfishness or ignorance. Some think that the root of the problem is adherence to the wrong kinds of ideology or political systems. Some think it's a matter of inequ inequitable distribution of power or resources. Uh, but none of these are particularly satisfying answers because even if they're sometimes relevant to particular cases, they still beg the question, yeah, but why are people selfish or ignorant or 
wrongly ideological or willing to perpetuate inequitable social structures. And in any case, none of those are the Christian answer. The Christian answer to the question, what is wrong with us, is straightforward. The answer is sin. The problem is sin. Now, some of us have had the experience of other people telling us in quite high-handed and unkind ways that we are sinners. And I just want to make it clear that I'm not doing that this morning. I have no intention of doing this. But it won't do to avoid the subject of sin just because sometimes people are dumb. Uh, it's true that even otherwise quite nice and reasonable people will sometimes act like they have wisdom about matters they don't know that much about. But that doesn't mean that all people are dumb all the time about everything. We just have to be careful when we're talking about consequential matters. And for what it's worth, I'll try not to be dumb uh, in the way that I talk about sin this morning. Now, this year, our church is focused on developing our understanding and intensifying our pursuit of the ongoing Christian business of discipleship, of learning how to become a mature follower of Jesus. And since many of us haven't had anything like a comprehensive introduction to the Christian story, on Sunday mornings, we're talking through some of the more foundational aspects of Christian belief and practice. Which brings me to the real reason why we can't avoid talking about sin. Sin is an essential feature of the Christian story. And I use the word essential here advisedly. The Christian story makes no sense apart from an understanding of the problem of sin. Absent sin, there is no distinctively Christian story. There's no Christian church. There's no reason for us to be here. So what I prepare, what I've prepared for you this morning is a pretty utilitarian explanation of the Christian notion of sin, in which I'm going to present the main Christian answers to three questions namely about what sin is, about what sin does, and about what God has decided to do about it. Uh, I think, I don't know what the title ended up being in the bullet. I think it's, I think Kenny has, it says on sin. I actually thought about titling this message an introduction to sin, but then thought that sounded like a lecture on how to sin, <laughs> which is something I do know about, but anyway, the titles seem counterproductive. I'm not good at titles. Now, uh, for Christians, the foundational story about what sin is and what it does is found in the book of Genesis, mainly in chapters 2 and 3. So I'm going to address the first two of my points about what sin is and about what it does by way of a kind of a quick and dirty exposition uh, of that story. But before I start, I will just note that the book of Genesis, uh, and especially the first several chapters, can be a difficult read for those of us who are not used to reading texts produced in the ancient Near East. If you read this story unreflectively as though it was written by or directly to present-day Westerners, you likely will be badly confused as to its intended meaning, and you may come to think that it was cobbled together by a bunch of naive, misogynistic, magical thinkers who didn't have enough sense to know the snakes can't talk. Now, I urge you not to make this mistake. The text we're about to read is a profoundly insightful, symbolically rich, deeply poetic commentary on the human condition. And it's not for no reason that it has been read and contemplated by the wise and the good for now thousands of years. Genesis chapter 1 offers, famously, an account of God's creation of the material universe and the earth in particular, with all its profusion of animal and vegetable life, and also God's creation of humans, about whom the writer says this, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
in chapter 2, we get the story of what happens when the humans are given their freedom. So this is starting in verse 8 of chapter 2. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of the knowledge of good and evil. Skipping ahead a bit. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So then God makes woman as a partner for man. And there's a lot we could talk about here, but I want to focus on three points. First, in this story, God deliberately creates humans. It's a sort of obvious, but it's a crucial point. Christians have always agreed that God created humans on purpose. And this claim holds whatever the mechanism God actually used, be it billions of years of biological evolution or some kind of special creation of the human soul or some mix of the two. The Christian claim is that humans do not exist by random accident. Rather, God intentionally makes humans to specifications of his own choosing with a specific set of powers and functions appropriate to them. Now, exactly what a human is and uh, what exactly are its powers and functions isn't completely clear, but we can at least say this. Humans are a certain kind of person. Right? This is kind of a technical term, term but I'm going to gloss over this. So certain kind of person in particular, with, uh, we ha you can say we have minds endowed with intellect and so can contemplate the world and ourselves. We have bodies with which we can perceive and ma manipulate parts of the physical world. We have, in addition, emotions through which we can both be informed about uh, certain aspects of the world and motivated to action. We have wills in a certain degree of freedom. So there are limits to our powers, but we can choose to wield or refrain from wielding the me mental and physical powers we have. And we have a moral sense, or what we sometimes call a conscience, an innate sense of what is right and wrong for us to do. Now, in this story, we have no explicit reference to conscience uh, because God himself simply tells Adam and Eve what not to do, but we'll talk a bit more about this in a minute. So, first, God creates humans on purpose. Second, in the story, God places humans in the best conceivable situation for humans. They have everything they need to flourish. They have one another, so they're not lonely. They have plenty of food and water. They have fulfilling work. They have animal friends. They have a close and abiding relationship with God himself. Everything. They have everything they need. So there's nothing in the human's environment, right, no external factor that compels them to disobey God. Everything's good with them. Third, in this, in this story, God sets the humans a prohibition and alerts them to the consequences of disobedience. He says, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or you will die. So there's important symbolism going on here with this tree, but the main issue for our purposes is this. By saying, don't do this thing, and by transparently informing them of the consequences of doing that thing, Adam and Eve are given the basis of an informed choice as to whether they will do what God says or not. 
And here we arrive at an answer to our first question about what sin is. There are some extended senses we're narrowing down on this one. Sin is the intentional refusal to do what we know to be right or to refrain from doing what we know to be wrong. Right? The intentional refusal. Now, I'm myself broadening out this definition from only circumstances where God is telling somebody unambiguously what to do or what not to do, mainly because as a straightforward matter of fact, God does not often speak to humans directly, and because Christians have always recognized that God has created us with consciences precisely so that we have a means of knowing what's right and wrong. So in Paul's letter to the Romans, for instance, he claims equality before God in this respect for both Jews and non-Jews, even though the Jews received the law of Moses directly from God. He says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves. Even though they don't have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their consciences also bear witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges, judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So, sin's the intentional refusal to do what we know to be right or to refrain from what, doing what we know to be wrong. It is effectively, for our purposes, intentional disobedience to God. Now, in fact, by this, by the, this point in the story, uh, we also get part of an, an answer to our second question, which is about what sin does. But that answer gets considerably filled out in the next part of the story, so let's get back to that. So skipping ahead to uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, we get to the snake. So, now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say... You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the garden or walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. God said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave, whom you gave, to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent seed me, and I ate. And then we get this thing where God kind of levels this series of curses. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply, multiply your pain in childbearing. 
In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And then God throws them out of the Garden of Eden. Now, lots going on here. And again, just to be clear, right, this is kind of a series of pictures that is pointing at some stuff. So try not to worry too much about the pictures right now. Look where they're pointing. Here's the main point for, for now. Adam and Eve sin by deliberately doing the one thing that God has told them not to do. Right? Note that they're not coerced to disobey, but they're convinced to disobey. And it ruins everything for them. And this points to an answer to our second question about what sin does. Sin destroys. In the story, Adam and Eve's disobedience to God's clear command damages their relationship to one another. It estranges them from God, puts them at odds with the natural world, and ultimately leads to their disintegration back into the dust from which they were created. Now, again, if you're reading this in a kind of an unreflective way, you're probably thinking, man, that's a lot of carnage over a piece of fruit. It's not about the fruit. And it's not about God getting angry either or about retributive justice in general. It's about what humans are. Keys to understanding this part of Genesis, actually, uh, by way of a little quasi-midrash, uh, can be found in a lot of things that Jesus says in the Gospels. So consider these sayings of Jesus recorded in the Gospel of Luke. So from uh, this is from Luke 13. Jesus told this parable. Uh, and this is something that Kenny mentioned the other week. A man had a fig tree planted in, in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? The vine dresser answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and, uh, and put down fertilizer. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Here's something Jesus says in Luke 14. We get the, both of these stories actually in the, rest, in the other synoptic gospels too, in, in, in Mark and Matthew. Uh, in Luke 14 he says, Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. All right, what, what, right? So these are clearly sort of riddles, right? What is that supposed to mean? <clears throat> so think about it like this by way of a quick advert to like uh, an analogy from analytical logic. What do you do with a square circle? No, nothing. It's not, that's not a thing. There's no such thing as a square circle, right? So similarly, what do you do with unsalty salt? It's not a thing. Uh, it doesn't even make sense. And clearly Jesus knows this. I want you to understand, you don't have to be an organic chemist to know that salt is salty, right? Salt is salty by definition. 
the tree thing is maybe a little easier immediately to understand. If you planted a fruit tree so that you can have fruit to eat and that tree does not bear fruit, then plausibly it is not a fruit tree. In any way, it's no good at all for the purpose for which you planted it. And all of this that Jesus says is in specific reference to the consequences of sin. What does sin do? It destroys. It unmakes the human person. It makes us inhuman. Remember what a human is. A human is a kind of person created by God for a certain set of purposes. What are these purposes? I don't know, at least not in any comprehensive way. But Christians think that in the biblical story, we get a pretty good kind of workable set of partial answers, the main thrust of which is we're created to imitate God in our finite way. So especially we're created to love as God does, right, to seek and work for the good of others. We're created to love God as our Father and Creator and to celebrate His goodness and His love for us and to love other people and act for their good. And there are undoubtedly other purposes for which God has created humans as well, right? To be creative like God is creative or to know and contemplate the good like God does. But suppose we sin, right? Suppose, uh, say, we uh, ought to undertake some act. We know we ought to undertake some act of love, but we, we refuse. In that case, we're not imitating God. Intent, instead, we're attempting, at least in a limited way, to supplant him to usurp God's role as the one who orders the universe. We are saying we know what is good for us. But in the process, we not only fail to be God, we fail to be properly ourselves. And human character is formed by habit. That first act of disobedience makes it easier to commit another, and the next makes it easier still. And which, with each such act, our conscience gets a little weaker. And this has knock-on effects for our intellect, which becomes less able to discern the truth about what we are and how we ought to live. And it disarranges our emotions. And it hurts other people and ruins our relationships with them. And in some cases, all this can cause us to act in ways that damage our bodies. And sooner or later, we find ourselves unable to reliably resist our own self-centered impulses. And eventually, we find our will is no longer free. And on the Christian view, apart from God's intervention, this has the potential to go on literally forever. So that at the last, we are completely separated from God, from other people, and from our own humanity. Which is to say, we are in hell. And I submit to you that we, all of us, are alarmingly far down that path already. You may not think so. But see if you can identify with what uh, the Apostle Paul says about himself in this letter uh, that he writes to the Christian community in Rome. This, this is from chapter 7 of Romans. For I do not understand my own actions, he says. For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. I can relate. Now, why does God let this happen? I want you to see how weird this is. The Christian claim is that, as in the Genesis story, right, God, right, the entire material universe and all other life on earth, in fact, does exactly what God tells it to do. He sets laws and limits for it. It does that. Everything else behaves in the way that God sets for it, except humans. 
why didn't God just create us to behave properly? I don't know. Okay, I, I have more questions than answers about all of this. But I'm inclined to think that love not freely chosen is not love at all. And I think that God must consider the existence of creatures who can love to be a thing of very great value. Because here's what I think I know. God has not simply left us to our fate. On the contrary, as Paul says again in Romans, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we know what sin is, right, roughly. Sin is intentional disobedience to God, and we know what sin does. It breaks us, and it breaks us so thoroughly that it renders us unable to fix ourselves. Now here, according to the New Testament writers, is what God has decided to do about sin. And once again, Paul serves as our spokesman. He says in Romans 5, For while we were still weak at the right time, God, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. So here Paul is saying something like this, that in order to heal us from the effects of sin, God himself chose his own son, the man Jesus of Nazareth, to suffer and die. What? Right? How is that supposed to work? According to Paul, it works something like this. By freely accepting God's solution to the problem of sin through the suffering and death of Jesus, we sort of identify with him. We're somehow helped to become like Jesus in his obedience to God so that we're reconciled to God, and not only that, but we're sort of pre-certified as fit to receive our share in the eternal life that God originally designed us for, as demonstrated in the resurrection of Jesus. Paul says, with him in a resurrection life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. These are astonishing claims and they are a great mystery. However, I am not going to make any attempt to explain or argue for them at the end of what is already an overlong sermon. I can only say that this is what Christians believe, and I believe it, and I am grateful. But I will leave the hard work of clarifying the atonement to, to Kenny <laughs> at some later date.